Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink, thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own, into our house enter thou not, through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps and Peepers. Hopefully, welcome back to Scared to Death. We've been getting uh, a lot of new listeners lately, so appreciate that very much. Welcome to the fun show. Mm -hmm. I'm Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm Lindsay. And uh, thanks for getting spooked with us again. Spooked? Spooked. Spooked. Uh, quick update on producer Joe Paisley's COVID status. Uh, yes. No ER trips this past week, so yay. Yay, Joe. He uh, should be out of quarantine um, and, and back in the studio next week. And as we re- the way we record this one, actually, as you're hearing it, hopefully he is good again. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fingers he crossed. A, hit a rough go of it, so. Yep. Hit him hard. Hit him hard. Um Awesome new Scared to Death tank top in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Discount code for that and all the other Scared to Death merch other than the book on screen now for the right. YouTube viewers. Good job. Mm-hmm. I did it. I nailed it. Uh, <laughs> how many How many stories do you have today, Lindsay? I have two. Okay. Uh, we'll be kind of like flashing back. Last week, we talked about losing time. Yep. I, I have a story with some serious time loss. Okay, cool mm-hmm. to follow up, follow up on that. Yeah, I mean, look at me. I like it. Uh, I, I will be moving away from missing time stories. Do have a mystery? Uh, heading to uh, sunny Southern California uh. for both of today's tales. Actually, San Diego specifically. Mm-hmm. The first involves a mysterious 1994 disappearance that has many minds wondering about monsters. And the second is all about the long-haunted Villa Montezuma, seances and shadows. Oh, I never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Long history of a lot of creepy stuff. I, uh... I got a little spooked. Oh, really? Digging into that one. Mm-hmm. You, you've been, I, I know we talk briefly sometimes about your other podcast, Time Suck. You were mm-hmm. in California on your other pods uh, this week as oh, yeah. well. So. Yeah, that's right. Uh, talking about the Tony Alamo cult. My God, mm-hmm. that is a weird cult. Uh, started in California, yeah, moved to Arkansas. That is a scary tale in and of itself. And it's yeah. it just a different type of scary. It freaked me out for sure, where I was like, wow, okay. T- terrifying cult leader. Yeah. So I'm going to get ready. Do you have some setup for me? I do, quite a bit. Okay. I just want to say this week, you guys are going to notice I have a different blanket. Uh, I love the, that blanket. Well, it's it's a beach towel, Dan. So bl- oh, look I at that. Was, I thought it was a cool blanket. <laughs> it's a towel. Ooh, I just hit the microphone. I'm sorry. Yeah. That probably didn't sound mm-hmm. great in everybody's nice. ears. Uh, I love it. And I decided I was going to use it this week. It's officially summer. 
I got the beach bag. I got the whole thing. Guys, it's really cool. Like, I'm not someone it's who... It's a beauty. It's a beaut. I'm not, like, big into, like, graphics. Mm. This graphic, Logan mm. worked so hard on with me. Like, I love it. He nailed my aesthetic. So, oh. if you want to check it out, hit the Bad Magic store. Bad mm-hmm. Magic merch store. Mm-hmm. I'll shut up now. <laughs> okay, so this first one, this first tale, yeah, quite a bit of setup. It, it's the mysterious death of Michelle Vaughn Eemster. We've talked a lot about seemingly dangerous entities here on Scared to Death, otherworldly beings who act in malevolent ways, creatures or spirits who menace, who threaten, uh, but who, you know, it would appear rarely kill. And why is that? Is it because these forces actually don't kill very often? Is it because, for some reason, they aren't capable of actual murder? Despite the sheer volume of supernatural stories, despite the thousands, if not millions, of eyewitnesses and eyewitness accounts of the paranormal, is it because none of this is actually real? Is it all just in our imaginations? Or... Do we not have many tales of people being killed by dark, otherworldly forces simply because the victims just didn't live long enough to tell their terrifyingly all-too-real story? I'm already so uncomfortable. 25-year-old Michelle's spirits were down. It was April 14th, 1994. It had been another rough day. She'd woken up hungover after a guy who she'd been uh, who'd been fl- flirting with her for weeks, Edwin Decker, finally convinced her to have some drinks at Winston's, a club two blocks off the beach in San Diego. After leaving Winston's, Michelle and Edwin bought a 12-pack of beer, pack of cigarettes, walked over to Edwin's apartment on Lotus Street. They stayed up until dawn, chatting, drinking, fooling around. Around 5 a.m., she took a cab to the house she shared with her roommate, Coco. Edwin was a nice enough guy, but Michelle didn't feel a meaningful connection with him, and she didn't wake up overjoyed and looking forward to seeing him again. But she was looking forward to what she'd been planning for a while that night. Uh, She and Coco had tickets for a Pink Floyd concert. San nice. Diego, yeah, San Diego's Jack Murphy Stadium. At least they thought they did. When they got to the stadium, the two women realized they'd accidentally bought the wrong tickets and were not allowed in. Oh, no. So they hopped in Coco's car, started the drive back to the Ocean Beach neighborhood. Michelle's spirits, very down. She felt derailed for a couple years now, actually. She'd grown up in San Carlos, California on the San Francisco Peninsula. One of five girls, she'd graduated from an all-girls Catholic school, Notre Dame High School in 1986. She then went to Saint. She then went to Saint Mary's College for a couple of years, and then a sudden cancer diagnosis derailed her collegiate plans. Ah, awful. Mm-hmm. When she finished with her radiation treatments a year later, she did recover, went into remission. She hit the road instead of returning to school. Not totally clear where she went. She told some people she'd been to Europe. Her mom said that probably wasn't the case. A few years later, during the fall of 1992, she turned up in San Diego, settling into a rented house on Poinciana Drive in the Loma Portal neighborhood. Mm-hmm. A couple months later, she took a room in Ocean Beach, then she got a new place, then another, then another, drifting from house to house, job to job. By the beginning of 1994, she was living with Coco in a two-bedroom at 4999 uh, Muir Avenue in the middle of a sleazy neighborhood known as the War Zone in northern Ocean Beach. Yikes. In the 90s, the War Zone was well-known for drugs, frequent calls to the police, cheap rent. Michelle worked various minimum wage jobs to get by, didn't seem to know where her life was heading. She was lost. Confused, And during a disappointing mid-April weekend, she decided to do what she sometimes did to escape her thoughts regarding her own uncertain future, go for a swim. Okay. Her favorite place to escape and feel peace is the same place that would give others nothing but stress and anxiety, the deep, dark waters of the vast Pacific Ocean. Michelle had always felt a connection with the ocean, felt on some level spiritual. Mm -hmm. She liked to swim even in conditions that other people would find frightening or unsafe, she could swim long distances, and she was also uh, known to take off her clothes before dipping into the water. The Pacific always made her feel better. Time now for the tale of the mysterious death of Michelle Von Emster. On the night of April 14th, 
The air temperature in San Diego was just 57 degrees Fahrenheit. The water temperature, not much warmer, just 59 degrees. The tide was high and the incoming surge generated three-foot waves that smacked the coastline. The sky was overcast and blocked out the new moon. Not good conditions for a late-night swim for most people. Uh Uh-uh. Michelle wasn't most people. She asked Coco to drop her off at the pier six blocks away from their house. And then Coco watched her roommate descend the steps down to the beach, her green jacket becoming smaller and smaller before she vanished entirely. And that was the last time Coco or anyone else we know of would ever see Michelle alive again. The next morning, some men were surfing when something caught their eyes underneath some nearby cliffs. A group of seagulls were standing on something. When one of the surfers paddled over to see what they were standing on, they found Michelle von Imster's nude, lifeless, and strangely and horrifically battered body. Oh. The surfer swam over and let the nearest lifeguard on duty know what they'd found a short time later, and and Michelle's body was removed and driven to a lab for an official autopsy. What happened to her is still a disturbing mystery. When her body was found, Michelle's right leg was missing from the thigh down. Ugh. Her neck, ribs, and pelvis were broken, and there were various scrapes and contusions on her face and torso. Also, large quantities of sand were found in her mouth, throat, and stomach. An autopsy concluded that Michelle was still alive when her injuries were inflicted, (gasps) still alive when she inhaled all that sand. She would have had to have taken a large breath to get all of it inside of her. The coroner ruled that her death was the result of being attacked by a great white shark. The only shark that could generate enough force to injure a human in the ways consistent with Michelle's injuries. But when various shark experts from around the world looked into Michelle's case, they all agreed that her injuries were in fact not at all consistent with the great white shark attack. Not even close. Currently, the global shark attack file does not recognize Michelle von Emster's incident as a fatal shark attack. In great white attacks, the shark often leaves behind a tooth or multiple teeth. That did not happen with Michelle. Also, great white fatalities, extremely rare in San Diego County. Not a location where a lot of these attacks occur. There have only been two documented attacks in almost a century, and really just one. One of those incidents is considered suspicious since no body was ever recovered, and there was only one witness. Mm. So really, again, one known great white attack that has resulted in a fatality in San Diego County in almost 100 years. And this is an extremely popular county for swimming and surfing, so lots of opportunities. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also thought to be extremely rare for great whites to hunt at night. They have light-activated retinas and typically come up from the bottom and aim at the silhouette of creatures like seals they can see thanks to the daylight behind them. And also, what about the sand? Sand was found in Michelle's mouth, in her throat, nasal passages, her lungs, her stomach. That means that if a great white had attacked her, it must have pushed her down into the ocean floor. How else could she ingest all that sand? But that's not how great white sharks attack. They don't push their prey down to the floor. Finally, this is what makes this case especially upsetting. Michelle's missing leg wasn't taken off cleanly, as great whites tend to do with one snap of their giant, incredibly powerful jaws. Yeah. What remained of Michelle's largely missing leg terminated in a bone that was described disturbingly as whittled. What? In the autopsy report, it said the bone was whittled to a point. How? What really happened to Michelle? What did, why did the coroner label her death as due to a shark attack if there's so much evidence against it? Well, investigative journalists later reported that San Diego medical examiner Brian Blackborn had never performed an autopsy on a shark attack victim ever before. Actually, none of the medical staff who had anything to do with Michelle's post-mortem examination had ever seen a shark attack victim before. San Diego detectives tried to patch together Michelle's moves from the night before. 
A day after her body was discovered, they found her purse a half mile away from where her body was found. Inside it was Michelle's driver's license, some keys, pack of cigarettes, pay stub, few cosmetics, and $27 in cash. Her purse was found on a very populated beach, and according to locals, it was highly unlikely that her purse could have sat there for even a day without being stolen. Did someone plan it after her death? Was someone maybe involved in her death? All very strange. Even stranger, none of her clothing was ever recovered. Some think Michelle might have been killed by a boat propeller. The massive trauma, most notably her broken pelvis, would be consistent with the boat slamming into her while she was swimming on the surface of the ocean. The leg amputation would have happened from contact with the boat's propeller. Mercifully, uh, Michelle would have died quickly. But what about the sand? She had to be alive to inhale that sand. The boat accident theory falls apart there. What if it wasn't an accident? What if Michelle ran into someone on the beach who was trying to hurt her? This possibility, possibility was officially looked into and police examined two possible murder suspects. Originally, investigators focused on Edwin Decker, the man that Michelle had hung out with the night before. She went missing, but he had an alibi. Uh, the other possible murder's identity remains unknown. Michelle's boss and co-workers told investigators that Michelle had left her job at a coffee shop recently because of a stalker. The only thing she said about the stalker was that he rode a motorcycle. But Michelle's death not ruled a homicide. And if someone had killed her, how did they create that weird wound on her leg? How did she get the, that wound and also swallow sand? How does someone mangle her body so gruesomely and leave no evidence of a homicide behind? It just doesn't make sense. Other possibilities have been looked into, like Michelle falling off the cliffs near the pier where Coco dropped her off. But that accident uh, still doesn't provide an explanation for her injuries. What if Michelle never ran into a shark or a boat or a murderer the night she died? What if she came across something else? Something otherworldly? Something unexplainable? What if, no, what if no one has been able to provide a satisfying explanation for her death because she was killed by something we currently don't have an explanation for? Every year, scientists find new, previously undiscovered creatures in the great depths of the world's oceans. What's out there that still hasn't been documented? Could some horrible nocturnal hunting monster be lurking in the dark waters of the Pacific? Yikes. There have been many, many, many supposed sea monster type sightings in San Diego. They've been reported for years and years and years. The first documented sighting occurred on October 21st, 1873. Captain George Charlesworth took four friends on his yacht, sailed to Spanish Bight, a cove that separated two islands. George and three other men rowed ashore to North Island in a little skiff to hunt curlews, a bird that was a delicacy in those days. Two men hid themselves behind some bushes on the southern shore. Uh, a man named Dr. Squills hid at the apex of the cove. Captain Charlesworth moved to flush out the wading birds. And then suddenly, Squills heard shouting and ran to the captain. Uh, Charlesworth said, I just saw a frightful monster, fully 30 feet in length, shaped like a snake, with three sets of fins and a tail like an eel's. It had a head like an alligator's, a bit wider than the neck, very thick at the base. A film covered its small eyes. Its dark body had mottled skin, spotted something like a trout, the belly a yellowish cast. Charlesworth said, Charlesworth said its fins looked like a sea lion's, between three and four feet in length. Uh, the forward pair, the heaviest, situated about two feet back of the neck. The first 12 feet, at least two feet thick, and then it tapered off towards its tail. Uh, what was this thing? George said the monster lay on wet sand that it raised its head and stared at him. And then when George and Dr. Squills crept back to look at this monster, it was still there. They both saw it. Oh. They were holding their double-barreled shotguns. Uh, they both claimed to have watched this strange creature swim into deep water with a portion of its body in view. They fired four rounds of birdshot at it. 
The two other men with them came running up, and while they didn't see the creature directly, they did see fresh, giant, snake-like swirls it had just left in the sand. Ew. Could this creature have killed Michelle von Imster or some other equally mysterious monster? What really happened to her, and do we really want to know? Not if it lives at the bottom of the fucking ocean. Isn't that a creepy thought? I already have a hard time with the ocean. Just like I know so many people love it. And, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, we've surfed, we swim, whatever, like all the things. But I feel best on water when I'm in a boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me just I say know, that. Right. But like um, we, we don't know what's down there. And I think the scary part about the, the bottom of the ocean specifically, mm-hmm. like I don't have this problem with lakes. I'm not freaked out by lakes at all. Yeah. Because it's just so self-contained. But you can't see down there. I know. After a certain point, it's just like cold and dark and creepy. And then you feel yeah. a little fishy go between your legs. And that's enough for me to be like. <laughs> and, and, and I will admit, I, I, I did not look up this aspect. So I don't know if there even are the equivalent of nocturnal hunters in, in the water. Like, like, you know, on land. Sure, why not? I don't know. I mean, on land, there's a lot of animals that do their hunting. A lot of predators do their hunting at night. And that's what kind of spooked me in my head. Right. I'm like, what if there's some ocean creatures oh God, I'm getting chills. that are that equivalent where when you're out there in the water, the oh, dark oh water at God. night, there's something we don't even know about. But who's going swimming at night? Like Michelle. Not very many people. Not very many people. That was her thing. Well, that's a weird thing to be your thing. I know. I'd be terrified. Do you think that since she beat cancer, she just kind of felt like she could defy the odds? And like sometimes people who survive something very traumatic like mm-hmm. that are more risk takers yeah. because they feel like you've only got one shot. Like I've already, you know, kind of walked that line. Yeah, maybe being raised around the ocean. I don't know. You know, but they're in San Francisco on the peninsula. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Just a different kind of person. They can uh, not be bothered by that. Do you have pic- I, I wish I was more that way. Yeah, I do have oh, some pictures. I do have I, some I'm, pictures. Glad, I'm glad you're not more that way. Uh, I, no. This first picture is Michelle. Oh, so sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this next picture is just, you know, typically how a shark attacks. We talked about, like, they don't push down. They go up, come up and breach the water, getting that seal. Oh, my God, that poor seal. Uh, the poor seal, but also sharks are fucking terrifying. Yeah, the great whites specifically. Uh, all sharks. Yeah. There, there's no shark that I would see and think like, oh, thank God you're not a great white. I would <laughs> see a shark and just be like, yeah, there's, there's little out. ones. There's little ones. I would still yeah. be freaked out. Absolutely. One little fin. That's all it would take. <laughs> and this last one is, this is the Pacific at night. And it's just like, man, yeah. the ocean at night just creeps me out. I mean, beautiful to watch from the beach. Or a cruise ship. True. A very large vessel. <laughs> True. You know, True. not like, not a little ducky. Like a little dinghy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We went on our first cruise, what, last year was uh-huh. it? Uh, and and yeah. and I remember thinking like, oh, I feel very safe here. Mm-hmm. But then, as I'm sure all people have these thoughts, I would stand out on the little like balcony thing and be like, oh my God, if you fell in right now, that would be it. It would just be over for you because the boat mm-hmm. would run you over. Or you'd get sucked under the boat. No one's getting you out. No one can see you that you're going to get eaten by sharks. Oh like I have God. all these crazy, crazy thoughts, but also like about what would happen to you. But also Such a nightmare. Is it normal to stand there and think like, but I wonder what it feels like? No, no. To be stuck out there in the water? Yeah. I, I'm so scared of that possibility that if, like, I was floating in the water and for some reason there was just a gun floating on top, I'd be like, I should probably just kill myself. Rather than just, like, live in such terror. 
I mean, hopefully my survival instincts would kick in and I would fight yeah, and I would fight yeah. that. Not that that scenario would ever play out. That'd be so I weird. Know, I don't like, know why that oh, would ever happen. The ship goes down and there's like a little the thing floating in the water and there's randomly a loaded gun just like, you know, I, sitting on it. Uh, I just but, pictured like oh, you fall out of. God, it's just so scary to think about what could be coming up after you. I think of you like falling out of some massive boat uh-huh. and then they float out uh, all these different options to you. There's right. like seven little boats around you and mm-hmm. there's a gun in one, there's food in another, a harpoon in another, <laughs> another one that you could just get in and get pulled back in and mm-hmm. you just fucking reach for the gun and just they're like yeah I'm good let's get it over with but but you don't think that like when I look over the side of a boat I have this like morbid curiosity of like but I wonder what that would feel like nope I don't want to I don't want to nope it's it frightens me too much to even like entertain that nope I don't even like I mean I don't want it to happen no I don't even let my mind go there interesting I was so fascinated by that idea that when we were kids we were on a family vacation and I had this teddy bear Mm -hmm. and I just like threw it overboard because I was curious of like what would it look like when it hits the water Uh, and in my kid brain I just thought like we could get a net and scoop it back Mm -hmm. like no big deal I'll get my teddy bear back nope nope gone for good but I wondered like well what if I was the teddy bear would they scoop me up like I I can't believe you don't go there in your brain your family would probably left you like that teddy bear how come her leg was fucking whittled Whittled. I know. It's a very dis- uh, dis- uh, disturbing uh, adjective. Yeah. Very specific detail. And I <sighs> think like when you first started telling it, I thought like, oh, she probably honestly just got like stuck in between some rocks and then tidal wave after, yeah. t- you know, kind of like yeah. slamming her because I was thinking of her dragged across the bottom. That's how. Mm-hmm. But sounds like that's not a viable option. <laughs> not according to the corner. I mean, who, yeah. Yeah. All right. You got, you got anything else? Or are, you, are you ready to move on? I'm ready to move on. And now we have, before we dive into another story, a quick sponsor break. Uh, thanks again for using our sponsor's custom landing pages and discount codes and letting them know that you do watch Scared to Death. Very appreciated. What is the most basic gift you have ever given the moms in your life for Mother's Day? Flowers? A candle? Some random knickknack you picked up at the last minute because you completely spaced Mother's Day? I have definitely made the mistake of procrastinating gifts for Mother's Day. And then, like the Friday before, I run to whatever store is open and convince myself that, yes, yes, my mom does need another coffee mug that declares she's the world's (laughs) best. So lame. This year, how about one-upping yourself by giving the moms in your life an Aura picture frame? Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to any mom at any age. Aura Frames connect easily to Wi-Fi and have unlimited storage so you can share as many pictures as you want. This year, as many of you know, I am on a spending freeze, but one of my carve-outs was meaningful gifts for the people I love. I don't want to give all of the moms in our lives something that won't bring them joy. We are giving Aura Frames to the moms in our world because they are timeless, heartwarming gifts. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code SCARED at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. 
I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. Head to factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 and use code scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code scared to death 50 at factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. You ready for another haunting? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, this is a little more traditional. Uh, it's another story set in San Diego. A lot of setup on this one as well. In You're the, really into the SoCal thing. I know. I haven't been trying to intention. This was an accidental theme, uh, okay. uh, a pairing. Fair enough. In the Sherman Heights neighborhood of San Diego stands an enormous red Queen Anne style mansion known as the Villa Montezuma. The regal abode was built in 1887 for the internationally renowned composer Jesse Shepard. Born Benjamin Henry Jesse Francis Shepard. A lot of names. That's a lot of names. Mm -hmm. uh, back when people had a lot of names. In Birkenhead, England in 1848, Jesse immigrated with his family to Illinois when he was just a baby. In 1863, his family moved to Niagara Falls, and here Shepard learned to play the piano and to sing. His natural talent stunned whomever heard him play. It seemed as if he could conjure instinctively the mood and the voice of history's most celebrated composers. After just a few years of playing, Jesse received invitations invitations to entertain in French salons for the Prince of Wales, wow. in, the, in the court of the Russian Tsar. Alexander Dumas, the great French novelist who wrote The Three Musketeers and the Count of Monte Cristo, Monte Cristo uh, I always want to say Crisco, like the fat stuff. Uh, you just got to think of a sandwich, a Monte Cristo. Mm -hmm, was so impressed with Jesse that he told him, with your gifts, you can find all doors open before you. In addition to being a gifted concert pianist and composer, Jesse was also... A spiritualist, as were many at the time. Spiritualism had swept the young United States beginning in the early 1800s, reaching a peak in popularity in the 1840s. Never a unified movement, rather just a group of varied practices and rituals, all based in the common belief that direct contact with the spiritual realm was definitely possible. Traveling through America in the 19th century, it wasn't uncommon to see lecture halls filled with people eager to see a famous hypnotist or a medium. And for the wealthy, it wasn't uncommon for them to organize parties around seances. Ghost seekers gathered around a table attempting to commune with the dead. 
Across America and in Europe as well, people attempted to contact their deceased loved ones to say goodbye to a brother who had died in war, to affirm their faith, simply to have an interesting, entertaining evening. Okay, sounds like fun. Were any actual spirits contacted? Many believe they were. Uh, Did all these spirits return from whence they came when the medium completed their seance? Who knows? Young Jesse moved to San Diego in early 1887 after developing a friendship with brothers William and John High, wealthy ranchers and members of the spiritual spiritualist group to which Shepard belonged. On February 19th, 1887, the San Diego Sun announced that Jesse Shepard, formerly of Paris, Paris, France, will build a $10,000 cottage on the corner of 19th and K Streets. And ever since this cottage, really more of a mansion, was completed, people have been wondering, did Jesse bring some sort of darkness attained through his spiritualist dabblings with him? According to John High's grandson, the High brothers sold Jesse his home for far less than it was worth. Why? Out of friendship? Or was it, as John High's grandson later claimed, because Jesse Shepard had used some dark arts to trick them? For sure. John High's grandson once asked his grandfather about it and received the startling reply of, Sam, it was hypnotism and nothing else. That man had us so hypnotized that we would have done anything under heaven he told us to do. Strange beginnings for the Villa Montezuma. Built on a hill, the Villa Montezuma mansion is now a museum, stands two stories tall. On its south side, there's a tower room complete with an arabesque dome. The dome itself was Jesse Shepard's study, had a magnificent panoramic view of San Diego. The music room dominated the entire east side of the first floor of the house and included an attached conservatory. The master and guest bedrooms were all located on the first floor, while the second floor was mostly used as a museum housing Shepard's prized possessions and gifts he'd received from European nobility. A kitchen and servants area was located below the first floor. Floors throughout the mansion were made of polished fur, which Jesse covered in Turkish and Persian rugs. Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say the floors were made of fur? Uh, F-I-R. The wood. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I know, it's kind of confused. Yeah, the wood. Uh, hardwood floors. Hardwood floors, not uh, furry floors. <laughs> I'm a genius. Uh, it, it is kind of a weird description from there. The bottom half of the walls are made of polished uh, redwood and uh, walnut, while wallpaper with patterns of uh, fleur-de-lis and orange blossoms covered the top half. The Villa Montezuma quickly became the place to go for the spiritualist community of San Diego. Jesse held seances and recitals in equal measure, combining the two into odd performances. Time now for the tale of San Diego's haunted Villa Montezuma. Guests would sit in a circle around Jesse and his piano, and the room would be darkened. And then Jesse, his huge hands covering an octave and a half, would strike the first chords, and tiny lights would suddenly flicker in every corner of the room. Some sort of trick? Or was Jesse, as he claimed, actually channeling dead composers, and the flickering lights were signaling their arrival? Jesse would proceed to play various pieces written by history's masters, claiming to channel each composer as he played them. Many of those who listened swore they'd heard an entire orchestra, despite the fact that Jesse played alone. One such piece Jesse performed was known as the Grand Egyptian March, and using only the piano and his own voice, Shepard supposedly recreated the full sounds of a battle complete with two opposing armies clashing. The people in attendance were transfixed. They'd never heard such a cacophony of sounds coming from one person. Was it a trick of the room, a trick of the piano, or had they just heard Jesse playing with the dead? Making things even more hard to explain, Jesse could speak English and French, but supposedly no other languages. Yet during his odd performances, after beginning his strange musical seance, Jesse would enter a trance state, and attendees witnessed spirits speaking through him in additional languages. A socialite and descendant of Polish royalty known as Prince Winiewiski said that Goethe came and recited passages in German while others spoke in Hebrew and Arabic. 
And then after just two years after arriving in San Diego, Jesse left. In 1889, uh, after publishing a collection of essays in France the year before, he left for Europe to further his literary career, and the Villa Montezuma was sold to David Dare on December, December 17, 1889. Years later, 1927, in his new home of Los Angeles, after having lived for years in both Paris and London, Jesse died a strange death. He was playing the piano at a friend's house when he passed suddenly from unknown causes literally dropping dead immediately after he struck the very last chord of the song he was performing. Weird. Did the spirits he played with finally take him as part of some deal he'd once made? The Villa Montezuma, Jesse left behind years early, would never stay in the same hands for long. Soon after purchasing the house, David Dare was forced to flee town, the police hot on his trail. His business partner had apparently committed suicide before he left town and Dare was accused of looting the firm. Oh no. Dare sold the house to H.P. Palmerston in January of 1890. And then Palmerston was unable to make payments and the house was foreclosed on in 1893 and auctioned off. In 1900, the bank sold it to Dr. George Calmus. And then six years later, Calmus went bankrupt and fled. From 1906 to 1909, the house was occupied by Mr. and Mrs. George Montgomery. Mrs. Montgomery was another spiritualist, a medium who used the house to give seances. And then in 1909, she suddenly fled town. What the heck? For the following several decades, no owner would stay in the home for more than just a couple years. A string of owners passed through the giant home a couple years at a time. They always had to leave, driven away by poor finances, sickness, and sometimes maybe by something else entirely. Mm-hmm. The last private owners of the mansion before it became a museum were the Jaegers, a retired engineer and a former silent film actress. After Mr. Yeager died in 1958, his wife took care of the Villa Montezuma, which by that time retained very little of its original splendor. Most rooms were dusty and boarded up. Weeds climbed the house's facade. Animals literally burrowed into the walls. As the house deteriorated, so too did Mrs. Yeager. Her memory faded. She began standing on the street outside the house, asking people who passed by where her husband was. Oh, that's so sad. If the passerby stopped and asked her a question, where did you see your husband last? Or is there, is there someone I can call for you? They'd catch a glimpse of the gun in Mrs. Yeager's hand. On occasion, she would pull the passerby close uh, you know, into her and mutter into their ear, I know you have him. What? People reported that her grip felt stronger than an old lady's grip should have been, and it was only after she released them that they were able to stagger away. No one knows what eventually became of Mrs. Yeager, possibly removed from the house and put into a home. Poor thing. In 1968, the house was purchased by the San Diego Historical Society, who retain ownership today. And though no one currently lives in the house today, something occupies the once luxurious rooms of the Villa Montezuma. Maybe multiple somethings. Uh-huh. If you were to walk into the Villa Montezuma today, you might see that in one corner of the garden, no plants are growing. It's well known to the caretakers that anything planted in this corner will die. No one knows why. Flowers wilt, grass turns yellow. The soil grows dry and dusty even moments after being watered. Weird. This dead zone extends to a corner of the house in which plants placed in vases die even when given enough sunlight and water. Did something die in that corner of the house? Is something still there that we can't see? There are also reports that Jesse is still playing his haunting music. Visitors to the Villa Montezuma sometimes swear they can hear the chords of a sad song coming from somewhere in the home. Whenever they try to locate it, the song always sounds as though it's coming from somewhere right behind them, always behind them. Sometimes it sounds as if an entire symphony resides somewhere in the walls of the mansion. Much creepier, in the beautiful and expensive stained glass windows, shadowy human shapes lurk. They've been spotted by numerous guests, passing from window to window. Once a visitor saw a friend of theirs looking at another window in the house and waving at them 
and a shadow figure passed by directly behind their friend. Yai, yai, yai. One window seems to get more activity than the rest. It depicts early 17th century Flemish artist Peter Paul Rubens. Visitors to the villa have seen Peter Paul Rubens' beard graying more and more over the years. Upon first glance, the painter will appear as a young man with a full dark beard, and then when one looks away and looks back, his beard has grown gray, his eyes have sunk into his skull, and his skin looks yellow. Multiple visitors have also attested to seeing an apparition hanging from the very same observatory where an unnamed man committed suicide long ago. Uh. One visitor remembers visiting the Villa Montezuma after hearing about it from her father, who grew up on nearby Market Street in the 1930s. As a newly driving teen in the early 60s, she decided to visit the house a few times. It already had a reputation for being haunted. Each time, she claimed, she would simply knock on the door, ask to be shown around by whoever was the owner at the time. The first few times, normal-looking people opened the door, either let her inside the hallway or said they weren't available and turned her away. But the last time, over a year since she'd previously visited, someone strange came to the door. A man wearing a long white robe welcomed her inside, said he'd be happy to give her an extensive tour. Oh, boy. She wondered if he worked there. Maybe did he give tours professionally? But then later she remembered there was no sign with hours or the name of a business posted outside. The man led her through a beautiful room full of ornate woodwork, oh stained glass, and gargoyles with black, glassy eyes. So softly she almost thought she was imagining it, she began to hear organ music. She wondered if the man was playing some, but she hadn't seen him put on a record. In fact, he hadn't really moved much except to welcome her inside. He just stood off in the distance, smiling a strange smile. Oh my God. And when she looked at him, he said, Ah, oh, Jesse's playing again. After a moment, he told her that he was working on something in the backyard and that she was welcome to take a look around the first floor on her own. What the hell? Creeped out but curious enough not to leave, she wandered alone into some of the first floor bedrooms. There were so many bedrooms, she thought. Too many. Strangely, some of them had impressions on the top sheets of the bed, spots in the shape of a body where the covers weren't dusty. She wondered how someone could lay down and get a perfect outline of a horizontal body, but not disturb the dust anywhere else in the room. It was as if someone had simply sunk into the sheets from above. She went to shut the door, spooked, and just as she reached for the doorknob, there was a tiny shift in her peripheral vision. Turning around, she saw a rocking chair. It had begun to rock back and forth, back and forth on its own. As she watched, it stopped abruptly, and then as, as if a person had gotten up and just walked away. Goosebumps broke out all over her body. She closed the door, proceeded down the hall. She walked towards the music room where Jesse supposedly held all of his seances. At least that's where she thought she was walking. But then she quickly found herself becoming disoriented, losing her way. The house was so large on the inside. It was too large. And when she took turns, she often wound up someplace she thought she'd just left. She eventually found herself looking at a set of stairs down to the basement, she presumed. Oh my God, no. Then she heard a voice say in her ear, I wouldn't go down there if I were you. She turned, it was the man who'd let her in. How did you get here, she asked. I didn't hear you coming. He smiled and said, secret tunnels. What? He had such a strange look in his eye that she couldn't tell if he was joking or not. She glanced back down at the basement as he said, nothing interesting in there, just storage. She nodded, made an excuse to leave, walking quickly in the direction of the door. After what seemed like forever, she found the door, wrenched it open, walked out into the sunlight. When she got to her car, she looked back at the house, and the man was suddenly looking at her from an upstairs window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This made her feel sick to her stomach. There had not been nearly enough time for him to get to the second floor. Oh my God. She got in her car, sat down, looked back. He was gone. Freaked out by the encounter, she decided to call San Diego City Hall and inquire about the ownership of the Villa Montezuma. When she got someone on the phone, they told her that the house, to the best of their knowledge, had been vacant and up for sale for over a year. Oh my god. Yeek. 
Who the fuck goes driving around, knocking on doors, asking to be let into homes? The real curious, right? The people who are real into the paranormal, real into hauntings. I mean, and multiple times, uh, that's all I could think. Like, are you ridiculously stupid? Don't go <laughs> well, by Well, the first yourself. few times, it sounded like, you know, earlier in her teens, I guess this last later, like, you know, she just, she did get to see in it. You know, she uh, must have been, she was just especially curious about this house. Tell me this, Dan. Yeah. If all of a sudden you find out that Kyler and Monroe, when they get their driver's licenses, are just driving to this random house. Oh, no, hey, I wouldn't like hey, it. Hey, can I come in? I'm like, I, I'm like, are you, what the fuck is wrong with you? You don't go yeah. knocking on a stranger's yeah. door and then ask to come in. You're asking to be murdered. I will say, and from doing a lot of uh, research into topics that delve into like the 50s and 60s in America on Time Suck, uh, very common in the 60s to hitchhike your way across the country. Like it was. This is not hitchhiking. I know, but it's just. This is someone's home. True, but just different. But but it was different. We're very, very, a lot less stranger danger. A lot less. It's just so weird to me Mm -hmm. to ask to be let into someone's private space. Yeah, but if that space was, was supposedly very haunted. And you're, and you're a teenager. I, I, I just, I don't know. Like yeah. maybe it's just the way I was raised, obviously different era, all of mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But if my mom and dad had found out that I was just knocking on some yeah. random oh, her, stranger's her, her door. Her parents' house probably would have been pissed. I mean, you Oh know, yeah. Maybe. My mom would be like, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, truly. But she didn't do it after that. Well, I bet not. That was terrifying. Uh, this first, this first photo is the, uh, is a, one of the original photos of the Villa Montezuma shortly after it was built. Wow. It's so pretty. Yeah. I love how they describe it as a cottage, like cottage my ass. <laughs> yeah. I'll, t- I'll take one of those cottages. <laughs> yeah, I'll also take cottage. it for ten grand. Oh, yeah, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> uh, this next one is uh, a more recent, much more recent photo of the Villa Montezuma. Wow, mm-hmm. it almost has like a Russian vibe because of the uh-huh, uh-huh. coloring and um, that dome. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this is Jesse Shepard, aka Francis Grierson. That's one of his pen names. So that's the pianist, okay, and author. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he wrote, he did write some books after he left this home. This next one is The Sign of the Nine. I like, I also find it interesting he wrote some like, you know, creepy seeming books. That looks like a, like a Hardy Boys book cover. Uh, yeah, 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 it does. Uh, this next one's The Limping Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Detectives- really cool book covers. Mm-hmm. And then the, this final picture is just a, a, an interior shot from the Villa Montezuma. Really? I mean, uh, you beautiful. can see how beautiful it was. I'm sure it doesn't look like that now. Well, well it's been restored. restored it. It's yeah. a museum, yeah, so yeah, probably yeah. Do- that is more recent. Yeah. yeah. It fell into d- disarray, disrepair, but now they've restored it. Mm-hmm. I'm still so mad at her for just driving around. Is she a Darren? It, kind of. I mean, she's Darren-esque? asking for it. Yeah. What's her name? Michelle? Michelle? It doesn't have the same ring. No. She's a Darren. She's a total Darren. <laughs> and also, it's not like, um, okay, if someone came to our house and said, you know, I used to live here. Yeah. That seems more normalish. I think people are always curious of what someone does to a home mm-hmm. after you leave. Yeah. But to just like, hey, I heard your house is haunted. Can I come in? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I, I can't. Uh-huh. I cannot accept that. Yeah. I don't care for Michelle. She's on my shit list. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also how how interesting that no one would stay there for long. And I know, for, financial for many, issues. Many years. Mm-hmm. Were they what were they spending their money on? Who knows? Ghost hunters and <laughs> ghost repellent. Try, trying to uh, save themselves. Okay, yeah. Dan. Dan. Yes. Dan, mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. we have a special guest in the studio today? Uh, I do. I do. We have Teresa. We have Teresa mm-hmm. now. We have Kate Keith's mama. Kate's mom is here. Mm-hmm. Teresa Bates. Yay. I mean, who, I, who is a fan of the show as well? I know, that's so sweet. It's very sweet. Very sweet. And she's sweet. She is sweet. She's sweet. She gives good hugs. <laughs> she wore her mask when she hugged me, just so you guys know. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so just one last chance reminder. Oh, yeah. This is it. This is it. This is the week that the book is going to officially go off being yeah. on pre-order. So you have until the 31st. Get it while mm-hmm. the getting is good. So excited. Yeah, very excited. We're, we're so excited to sign those books and send them out. Yeah, I mean... I'm so excited that y'all are going to make my hand cramp. I'm pretty, pretty into it. (laughs) Um, Okay, so Dan, I have two stories for you. Okay. My first one is a possible haunted house. Okay. And then my second one is definitely about like losing time. Also a haunting, maybe? Okay. Question mark. Um, Now, I have to say this, this first story, sometimes when people send in their stories, they give them little like titles or what have you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is not a dig at religion. But this story was titled "Jesus Was in the Closet," and I just started laughing. I was like, "That is the funny title." It's a funny title. Yeah. Uh, so that really pulled me in. And then, as luck would have it, I also heard from the author of this story. It's a mm-hmm. um, a couple, Cody and Anna, and they're getting married soon. Oh, congrats! So we just want to give a big congrats, and you know, we love love. We love love. We love love. So congratulations, Cody and Anna. Mm-hmm. And let's uh, get into it. You got your squish squish. Boom. Boom. Nailed it. All right. Dear your majesty, queen of the suck. They don't even talk about you. They don't care. It's fine. My name is Anna, and my soon-to-be husband's name is Cody. We've been longtime fans of Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. And when you started Scared to Death, we were instantly hooked, as, and we knew we had to send in an email with this story. I know it sounds crazy, but I swear to Nimrod, it is 100% <laughs> true. While the story is not the most terrifying experience I've ever had, it is the one that has stuck with me my whole life. First, I would like to preface this with saying that Cody and I live in Albany, New York, and we have both had several paranormal experiences, both separately and together. Okay. And we are both open to the supernatural. However, with that being said, neither one of us do anything stupid. For example, we don't play with Ouija boards or go to graveyards or anything like that. Okay. So they're not Darren's. Okay. Okay. And although I don't believe, um, I, although I don't believe I'm a sensitive, I'm sorry, although I do believe I'm a sensitive, like, okay, you okay, know, maybe yeah, an empath, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. However, it seems that even though we do not seek out the supernatural, it somehow always finds us. In 2017, we had just moved in together and we were looking to buy our first home. We were looking in the rural area surrounding the city of Albany. We found this really cute looking brick house that was built in the 1800s, already a little. <laughs> The previous owners had done some minor renovations and it still needed some work to be done, but it had tons of original charm and it was way below our budget. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounded too good to be true. And we thought, oh my God, this is awesome. Let's go look at it and maybe we can put in an offer. So we called our realtor and set up a meeting to go to the house. We got there before our real our realtor did and we were just sitting in the car talking about the yard and the overall curb appeal of the house. We could tell that it had been vacant for a while. Mm -hmm. And when the realtor finally showed up, we went into the house and immediately I absolutely loved this house. Just something about it drew me in. I felt it sort of calling to me and that I needed this house. Ding, ding, ding. Uh Uh-huh. I need a little button. Mm -hmm. More red flags. Can we get a red flag? (laughs) We have to try and remember. Oh, my God. It was your classic 1800s era house. When you walk in the front door, set in the center of the house are French glass doors leading to a large formal dining room. Next to those doors are the stairs that go upstairs. Going in a full circle surrounding that dining room were the rest of the downstairs rooms. Upstairs, there were two bedrooms on either side of the staircase with a bathroom in between them. 
Cody and I walked all through the house talking about possible changes and furniture and dreaming of what we could do. When we went upstairs, that's when everything started to go downhill. We went into the bedroom to the left, and it was big and and had high ceilings and a huge closet. At first, I was so excited about this closet. Of course, I have a large wardrobe. Mm -hmm. But then I noticed that on the floor, leaning against the wall, was a photo facing the wall. I thought this was so odd. So I picked it up, and I turned it around to see the face of Jesus looking back at me. As a Catholic, I didn't find the photo itself at all creepy, but why was it sitting facing the wall in the corner of a closet? Mm-hmm. When I turned around to walk out of the closet, I noticed three different deadbolts on the door that had to that had the lock knob on the outside. So many flags. At first, I wrote this off as maybe the previous owner had valuables that they kept in their closet, maybe expensive jewelry or guns or something. But Cody would say later that he thought that maybe... They were there to keep something else in that closet. As I left the closet, I set down the photo of Jesus on the floor, but this time facing out. We walked across the hall into the other bedroom. This room had very low ceilings, and Cody had to stoop to get into the room. He's about 6'5". Oh, wow. and it, Yeah, and it was a decent-sized room, and I looked in that closet, and I found another picture frame. I picked this one up and found yet another photo of Jesus. At this point, I was starting to get freaked out. Why were there photos of Jesus in the closets? Mm -hmm. Who put them there? And why were they all facing the wall? At this point, Cody pointed out that every door had an eye and hook lock on the outside Uh. of the doors. This was also super creepy, but I thought I had a possible explanation. I had lived in old houses all my life, and so I knew that those houses were not always level and square. The doors can often shift and drift open and not fully close. But if that was the case, why were there locks on the outside where there were inhibitants of the room that couldn't access them? Mm-hmm. At this point, the realtor offered to take Cody to the basement and show him the furnace and other utilities. I said I would just walk around the house and take photos. They went outside, as you could only access the basement from the outside, and I was left in the house all alone. Or so I thought. <laughs> As I walked around the upstairs, I took pictures from every corner to get full coverage of the rooms. As I was walking down the stairs, I was gripping the railing with one hand, my other hand on my phone, and I could feel this cold gust of wind go past me. And then I felt a definite hand on my back push me super hard, almost falling face first down the stairs. Thank God I was holding onto the railing as I was able to jerk myself straight and remain on my feet. Once downstairs, I was now super freaked out, but Cody was still in the basement and I didn't want to just stand there in place and become a sitting duck for whatever was in this house. Mm -hmm. I continued my my solo photo shoot of the house. I took photos of the French doors in the dining room and then closed them and latched them shut with the iron hook lock that was on the doorknob. I walked through the rest of the house of the downstairs taking photos as I circled back to the front door where Cody and the realtor were standing in the entryway just chatting. As I look at them, I notice the French doors are now wide open. I asked Cody if he'd gone into the dining room, and he said no. He'd only just walked in the house 30 seconds before that. Mm -hmm. I said I had seen enough, and I wanted to leave. I knew Cody could tell something had happened by the look he gave me, and we walked out the front door, down the walkway to our car. He put his arm around me to keep me from turning back to take one last look at the house. Once in the safety of the car, on the drive back to our apartment, I told him what had happened to me while he was in the basement. When we got home, I started going through the photos on my phone. Mm -hmm. I had an iPhone at the time, and I didn't realize I had the photo setting set to live photo. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
As we're swiping through the uh, photos, we notice what looks like a blurry man running through the living room. But as I swipe to the next photo, which was of the same room from the same angle taken only seconds after the first one, he was gone. I went back to the blurry man in the live photo, clearly showing his arms and legs moving fast as if he was running towards something, and still the photo had him in mid-stride. He had no distinctive features or outline, just a black mass. I did not see him in real life, but looking at that photo, my blood went cold, and I knew that whatever that thing was, it was not good, and that it did not want anyone living in that house. It was at this point that Cody told me the whole time we were in that house, he could feel something that was not welcoming, but he just didn't want to say anything to me because I had loved the house so much. Mm -hmm. He also told me that as we were leaving, he took one last look at the house and saw a black figure standing in the upstairs bedroom window where we had found the first Jesus photo in the closet. Finally, I realized that my initial love of the house was quite possibly just this entity trying to draw me in so it could do serious harm to us. Needless to say, we did not buy that house and we never, <laughs> ever went back. Yeah. I no longer have any of the photos because after that night, I deleted them all and cleansed myself because I was so scared that if I kept the photos, it would somehow give the entity a portal to travel through and potentially attach itself to me. <sighs> to this day, I still get sweaty palms when I think about what if, what could have been inside that house and what could have happened to Cody and I had we decided to buy it. Thanks for being so amazing. Keep on sucking. Your mm -hmm. loyal your loyal peeper and creeper, Anna and Cody. Uh, thanks, Anna and Cody. Uh, you know, that that story reminded me of one of the very first stories I told on Scared to Death. I think it's the Union House in Missouri. Oh, yeah. I, I, I believe it was the LaChance family. And remember, there was that dark shadow that was just like seen zipping past windows. And it, it reminded me because of the locks. I'm mm -hmm. pretty. I'm pretty sure, and we've told a lot of stories now. But I'm pretty sure that was the one where there was those little key, what eye hole. I think they're called. That's locks. what she's talking about. Uh, a hook mm -hmm. in. Yeah. And, and, and same thing. They had yeah. them on the outside of the door. Uh huh. Which is so creepy. So creepy. That's a creepy ass house. Uh huh. Thank God they didn't buy it. Oh yeah. And then that whole thing about that's that's always such a next level thing when when uh, some unseen entity like makes contact with somebody like when you feel something push you hard. That's come up in a variety of stories, you know, mm -hmm. over the last year. The photos did it for me. And, and and I never thought of that. You know, at first I'm like, wow, I would love to see those photos. Why wouldn't you have those photos? Photos, but then I can see where if like if you experience oh. that and then you just get this feeling in your gut like this, I, I got to get rid of this. Like uh -huh. keeping this somehow is keeping this thing close to me. Gee, that, that gave me the chills. When you were telling the first story today, I don't you know. Were, something was going on with you. I, I didn't want to stop the story. But I know. Like, I didn't want to stop the story and address it. But this dress has like these little like ruffles on it. And mm -hmm. a couple times I just felt like this. Like somebody moving the ruffles? Uh-huh. Ruffles. Yeah, I just and I thought Sorry, like, oh, is it like caught on my my blanket? Is there? Uh, there's mm -hmm. nothing here. There's nothing attached to yeah. me. There's no like string. No one's playing a joke. Like I was like, what in the fuck is touching me Joe, right now? Joe's not here to mess with us. And who knows? Because Joe never fesses up. I know Joe never confesses a thing, so we don't so. know. We, we... <laughs> <laughs> that was Zach. That was Zach. That scared the shit out of you. Oh my. Nice work, Zach. Zach just popped on the mic out there and Can gave that this? little laugh. Oh, oh my, god. my god, he got you so good. Ah, that was great scene. Oh my god, that was a great reaction. Well, I did not care for that. <laughs> Zach, you're fired. <laughs> that was well, well. And you're rehired. <laughs> and you're back. Okay. <laughs> Don't leave yet. We're not done with the show. You, oh, can, yeah. you can leave after this is over. God, that was that was nuts. Oh man. Okay. Are you ready for one more? <laughs> yeah. So again, this goes back to sort of like missing time. Okay. Yeah. You know, yep, and yep. I, I last think last week's theme. Ooh, theme. Theme. Yeah. Last week we talked about Betty and Barney Hill. 
Mm-hmm. And we, and yeah. we talked about uh, Hoyabachu, that Romanian forest. Yeah. 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 This is this story. I feel like this is exactly what I would have done when I was a teenager. Okay. You know, just like going out, looking for a good time. Okay. You know, trying to spook each other. Mm-hmm. But this story really messed this kid up. Okay. Okay. So we have an anonymous story from a big fan in Southern Indiana. Mm-hmm. And he says, I've had several encounters and strange things happen in my life, but I'll talk about the time where I am told a malevolent being may have been trying to take hold of me. I'll do my best to keep it short and sweet. Flashback about 15 years ago, even then a creeper for sure, some buddies and I were visiting all of the haunted places in the tri-state area. We had heard about this damn old house in a nearby town referred to as Dogtown. We piled into three cars and headed to our destination. Mm-hmm. After about an hour, we were lined up in cars in front of this decrepit building. Picture an old two-level building with two large picture windows, one above the other, but all of the doors and the windows are missing. As okay. expected, we didn't see anything, but I did have a feeling of extreme unease. A handful of us decided we would go back the following day during the daytime. Mm-hmm. So the next day, the five of us go back around noon. Now, keep in mind, this is late July. The temperature was around 95 degrees and the heat index was even higher and drier. Being 18 and invulnerable, we all agreed to go inside. Climbing the four steps to the side door and crossing the threshold one after the other, I was immediately hit with a sense of dread and began to shiver. The temperature around me dropped low enough for me to see my breath inside the house. There was graffiti all over the walls, busted up walls, destroyed furniture. Under the stairway was a hole in the floor with a petrified noose hanging from it. Scary, right? Yeah. So, what did we do? (laughs) We climbed up to the second floor. Upon hitting the landing, I immediately started dripping with sweat from the sudden increase in temperature all around me. Needless to say, I did as Lindsay always does, and I got the fuck out. (laughs) The brave five decided we wanted to go back with a couple more people at night. After, I'm sorry, about a quarter mile from the house, I got cold chills, and at the same time, some other odd feelings took over my body. Two vehicles parked in front with walkie-talkies, windows up and doors locked. I was the first to see her. Top left window, a woman appearing to look like she was in the early 1900s, a nun, possibly. Fumbling for the walkie, I radioed the other car. At least five of the nine of us saw her. We left immediately. I had to be at work the next day at 4 p.m., and so I got dressed, did my thing, and left. Around 9 p.m., my phone rang. Hey, man, where are you? You missed work. We've been calling you for hours. What? Not knowing what the hell was going on, I looked at my phone to discover... 32 missed calls and numerous texts. I surveyed my surroundings and somehow, impossibly, I was there in the driveway of that damn old house. Obviously freaked out, I left as quickly as I could. Over the next six months, I have no idea how much time I lost as more than a dozen times I would have these blackouts and snap back to reality to find myself in front of that house again. Being teenagers, we were fearless and we used my new trick as a way to pick up chicks while cruising the strip. (laughs) I became the party trick. My friends would ask girls, want to see a haunted house? It got to the point where I was able to tell everyone if we'd see the nun or not within a quarter mile of the house. And I was never, never wrong. The last time I was physically drawn to the house, I was in the middle row between two random girls, my two buddies in the front and three in the far back seat driving to the house. 
About two miles away, tears began streaming down my face, goosebumps covering my body, and I started hyperventilating. She's not there. She's not there. We have to stop. She's not there. Oh, God. Oh, God. She's not happy. The girls are freaking out now. My buddy's thinking I was putting on a show, telling me it's cool if we don't see her. We're still going. I responded, she's not at the house, and she's not happy. Oh, my God. Slow down. She's right there. And I pointed in front of the car, and at this exact moment, everyone looked forward and saw her standing there in the middle of the road. The car screeched to a stop and slid into a field, everyone freaking out and the nun disappearing into thin air. We went on towards the house, and yes, Lindsay, you're probably saying, dumb, dumb, dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Pulling up to the house, I realized why she was no longer in the house. Someone had bought the building, and it was being remodeled. To my relief, I was never drawn to this building again, and I... (sighs) But I have avidly avoided going anywhere near that area to this day. Since then, I have had other sightings and feelings. I can't go into a cemetery without feeling things or hearing voices of people that aren't in fact there. A friend of mine who practices Wicca and is an empath told me that I'm a channel and I have a bright aura. My friends have told me all of this. My friend told me all of this when we met for the first time before they even knew my stories. I kept a lot of small details out of this story to keep it as concise as possible without losing much of the overall story. Some have chalked this up to teenagers just being naive, but I have taken my father, some coworkers, and and even a family friend who's a white witch there as well. I wasn't going to admit it, but I do also own a couple crystals now, and things have been quiet around the house ever since. Love the show. Keep it up, guys. I've got my whole family listening and watching now. Oh, that's awesome. Wow, that that one gave me some serious chills. What the hell? Yee, good, good submission. I mean, they're all good submissions. Yeah. Man, man, we get... What would you do? What would you do if you just came to in front of some random fucking house with with me having called you 32 times? I mean, that... That... uh, That's that's gonna stick with me for a long, long, long time. Oh, man. I'm going to, I would just be so freaked out pretty much all the time. Like, when's it going to happen again? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then if it happened twice, oh, my God. I mean, I, I guess I would go to a therapist at first and just, like, I don't, make, I don't know, I don't sure know what they like, could do. But, yeah, make sure I'm, the, the, yeah, like, what's, is there, I'd have my, I, like, a CAT scan. I was like, do I yeah. have a tumor? I mean, not, I'm not even being jo- like no, joking. No, of course. Like, is there something going on in my brain that's making it short out sometimes? Mm-hmm. But, but, which doesn't really make sense, but I would just want to tr- do something. Sure, you just kind of go to the traditional path first. Yeah. That's freaky. And as a young kid, too, like if our kids, I just don't think you're going to believe a kid right away, right? You're like, a, mm. you know, 16, 17, 18 year old kid. And my kid tells me that I'm like, bullshit. Mm-hmm. You're out doing something you're not supposed mm-hmm. to do. I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Bunch of good chills today. I know. It's great. Oh, I'm going to think about Zach getting you for a while. <laughs> what did I do? You just, it's just a look at, oh, we'll see. You'll, you'll, we'll see the video playback. I mean, yeah, but I just wondered what and, like and, your impersonation of it was. It's ah! <laughs> 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 beautiful, Dan. So beautiful. Oh boy. Oh um, man. I hope that was enjoyable for everyone else. <laughs> uh, well, well, thanks everyone for submitting those stories. They're so fun to hear. So fun. I, lo- I love, I love a good scary story. Uh, and thanks for the ratings and reviews lately. Uh, Creeps and Peeper so motivating. Yeah, um, it's definitely helping so many other people find the show. Uh, you know, hey, thanks to the Darrens if you're reviewing the show. Whoever, <laughs> Creeps, Peepers, Darrens, everybody. Yeah, well, I mean, we love it. We lo- we love knowing that we're touching mm. your lives and that you're enjoying yeah. the show and that you're sharing it with your friends. It 
it makes it so fun for us to do this knowing that you mm-hmm. love it so much. Yeah, very, very fun. And and, and that's all, unless you have something else uh, for today. Uh, I don't think I have anything else. Uh, thanks for, yeah, uh, uh, you can continue, excuse me, to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Uh, you can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan and Kate, uh, social media. Uh, thanks to Teresa for uh, being in studio today. Teresa! Badmagicmerch.com for uh, uh, everything, you know, that we talk about merch-related here. Producer Sophie Evans for help in her story, uh, in story curation. Good job. That's a tough one. Story curation. Story curation? I don't know why it's tough for me today. Zach Flannery, thanks for uh, producing and directing today, for uh, adding and creating the custom sound beds. Thanks to Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. Hopefully Joe Paisley will be back in next week and feeling great. Come on, Joe. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want more content at Scared to Death Podcast. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube and enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Hope we scared you to death. Bye, y'all. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but has no home here within scared to death. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album, and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.